Well, Romans chapter number 7 is our text today. And um, I want us to begin by uh, thinking together about uh, a bit of history. So, you know, the Puritans were, actually it occurs to me even as I begin with that statement, the Puritans were, um, do you get a little worried when a sermon begins with a reference to the Puritans? Like when I begin by saying the Puritans were, are you immediately glassing over and going, oh man, what, what are we even going to be talking about here? Now hang with me, all right? Uh, the Puritans um, were a movement or the Puritan movement began a hundred years or so after the Protestant Reformation and it began in England. Now, the Puritan movement was, uh, as the name suggests, a purist movement which advocated the full separation, the purity of the church uh, by the full separation of the church from all things Catholicism in a, in a general sense and from the Church of England in a more specific sense. Now, this is not unimportant to us as Americans because as many of you will remember from your elementary uh, uh, history classes that some of the earliest American colonies were settled by the Puritans. Um, as I mentioned, the Puritans were purists who were interested in separation, not just from what they considered to be false and empty religion, but separating themselves also from sin. Puritans were known as those who were committed to eradicating sin from their own lives and from their churches and even from their community. They were known for this strict discipline uh, as it related to their behavior. In fact, the word Puritan has become a bit of a byword over history where uh, we use the word Puritan to refer to someone who lives an austere or maybe a very legalistic kind of life. We may say something like, oh, you are so puritanical. Uh, they were so interested in purifying themselves from sin. In fact, one Puritan pastor, John Owen, famously said, uh, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, can I be honest with you? I wish that we were more Puritan-like in that way. What I mean to say by that is, I wish that more Christians would have a Puritan-like view when it comes to the issue of personal sin in our lives. I wish that we would take sin more seriously than we take it. Rather than rationalizing and justifying our behavior, or even worse, rather than arrogantly, pridefully rejecting the authority of Jesus or the authority of his word in our lives, I wish Christians would learn to mourn the presence of sin in our lives. Now, when we think about mourning as believers, we recognize that we always mourn with hope. 
whatever we're mourning, if we're mourning sin in our lives or if we're mourning some particular loss or if we're mourning grief or fear or whatever, if as a believer in Jesus, if there's mourning in my life, it is always mingled with hope. And mourning mingled with hope equals lamenting. You know what lamenting is, don't you? We've talked about lamenting here at Brookstone. To lament means to mourn with hope. Um, I think it's uh, in the Psalms of the Lament. There are a number of Psalms of Lament in which we can learn that most laments, or in fact, I think it would be true to say all lamenting, uh, have three characteristics. Every lament is marked by three distinctive characteristics. Write them down if you will. The first one is a crying out. When we lament, we are crying out to God. You see this in the Psalms of lament when the psalmist is crying out in this raw and very real, even desperate, emotional crying out to God. Lamenting means to cry out. But there's also the characteristic of asking for help. In a lament, we're not just wallowing, we are in fact seeking. So we cry out to God asking for his relief, for his intervention, for his rescue. And the third characteristic of a lament is the characteristic of praise. That in the midst of our grief and our mourning and our desperation and our crying out and our seeking help, we also praise God. So it's this mingled mourning with celebration, grieving with praise, crying out, but expecting the answer before it comes. And this lament of praise acknowledges the goodness of God and it expresses our confidence And our trust in God. So when I say, I wish more Christians would mourn the presence of sin in our lives, I'm saying, I wish that we would lament over our sin. Now, Paul did just that. You've opened your Bibles to Romans chapter number 7. Look with me in verses 24 and 25. Paul is lamenting the presence of sin in his life. He says in verse 24, chapter 7, verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am. There's the lament. There's the mourning. There's the grieving the presence of sin. He's, he's, He's crying out about the reality of sin in his life. And then he asks a question. It's an expression of of hope. Uh, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? He's asking God for help. And then in verse number 25, he praises God. Oh, wretched man that I am, verse 24 says, verse 25 says, I thank God. So mingled with the mourning of verse 24 is the praising of verse number 25. Do you see the lament? It's a lament not over some loss, but it's the lament of Paul over his sin. Oh God, I'm a a broken man. How can you help me? Who will help me? Oh, thank you, Lord, that you help me in Jesus. Now, this is instructive for us. Because we need to learn to lament. 
over the reality of our sin. As you come to the end of Romans chapter number 7, Paul is lamenting the reality of sin. But as you move into chapter number 8, he is praising God for the delivering power of the Holy Spirit as it relates to the issue of sin in our lives. In fact, what you'll discover as we read the text today, that the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times in these few verses that we're going to read. The Holy Spirit is referenced as being the source of power to help us overcome sin. So let me welcome you into week number three of this five-week journey where we're thinking together about life in the Spirit. Five ways that the Holy Spirit refreshes and renews our lives. A couple of weeks ago, we began by talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit awakens our heart. This has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in our conversion. Last week, we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit renews our mind, our thinking, our understanding This has to do with his beginning to transform who we are and how we see our place in the world. And today we're thinking together about the fact that the Holy Spirit quickens the body, that he transforms the way that we live in these human bodies. This has to do with the work of the Spirit in sanctification. Now before we read the passage, let me me ask you, do you ever... Uh, realize, do you ever feel this struggle? Here's the struggle. Look at chapter 7 and verse number 15. For that which I do, the King James says, I allow not. It means I don't understand it. For that which I do, I do not understand. For what I would, that I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. You ever feel that struggle? Look at verse number 19. For the good things that I would do, I don't do them. But the evil things which I would not do, those things I do. Can I get a witness? Does anybody in the, in, I started saying anybody in the room. I'm the only one in the room. Does anybody in your room feel that struggle? I don't always do what I ought to do. I know what I should do, but I don't do it. And sometimes I know what I shouldn't do, and yet I do it anyway. This is the struggle, the very real struggle that Paul is acknowledging. We're going to read about it uh, beginning in Romans chapter 7 and verse number 15. Now, I'm going to read 30 verses today. Can you hang with me through 30 verses? You can, and you're even going to say amen, right? Because the word of the Lord is good. So you hang tight and follow along as we read. I'm beginning in Romans chapter 7. And verse number 15, we just read it. For that are those things which I do, I do not understand. For what I would do or should do, those things I do not do. But what things I hate, those things I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will or the desire to do what is good is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Again, verse 19, for the good that I would do, 
I don't do. But the evil which I would not want to do, I end up doing those things. Now, if I do that, I would not. Uh, It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that, after the, they that are after the flesh do not mind the things of the flesh. I'm sorry, they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity, it's hostile against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then they which are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, if the Spirit of God uh, dwells in you. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, uh, if it is so that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. Generalize that in your Bible. He shall quicken or make alive your mortal bodies. This is what we're considering today. The Holy Spirit quickens the body. He shall quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We are obligated, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, You shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He's a good, good Father, as we were singing. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 30 verses. Did you hang with me? I want you to begin understanding this passage by writing down what Paul refers to repeatedly. And we're going to go through and mark this in the text. But go ahead and write this down in your notes. He begins by talking to us about the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. And it's so prevalent in this passage, there's no way to miss it. I want you to take your pen, if you will, and uh, underline or circle in Romans chapter 7 and verse number 23 this statement or these words, the law of sin. You'll see them at the very end of verse 23, the law of sin. And then again in verse 25, the exact same phrase is mentioned at the end of the verse, uh, the law of sin. Two times in chapter 7, he refers to the law of sin. When you get into chapter number 8 and verse number 2, he enlarges the name, maybe given its full name in chapter 8, verse number 2, when he speaks in the end of the verse about the law of sin and death. Chapter 7, verse 23, verse 25, the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse number 2, the law of sin and death. Now, when Paul talks about the law of sin and death, he is talking about this law within every person or uh, this principle that is present within every person of the presence of sin that is obvious, it's logical out of our own experience, out of Paul's experience, out of our own experience, the fact that we struggle with sin and the and the deadly results of it, he says the evidence of our lives is that there is a principle of sin and death within us. In fact, if you work down through the passage that we read beginning in chapter 7 and verse 15, you see it coming up over and over again, this principle of law uh, or principle of sin or this law of sin and death. And he confesses, as, uh, confesses it, as we've already noted, in verses 15 and 19. When he says, I, you know, I don't understand what I do. I, I, I can't fully acknowledge what, is, what is, I know to be true in me. It is that the things that I don't want to do, I sometimes do them. And the things that I know that I sh- uh, should do, I don't always do them. I'm not perfectly living my life in obedience to the law of God or in full submission and surrender to Christ. And this, this fact is evidence of the presence of this principle of sin and death. Look at chapter 7 and verse 21. Notice how he builds upon this reality. Chapter 7 and verse 21, he says, I find then a principle, a law, that when I would do good, Evil is present with me. Now, what, is, what does it mean when I realize that I'm, I don't always do what I should do and I sometimes do what I shouldn't do? What does that prove to me? Well, Paul says in verse 21, it proves that even though I want to do good, I desire to do what is right, there is an evil that is true of me. You see it, verse 21, evil is present with me. Look at how he expresses it in verse number 17. Now then it is no more I that do it. Do what? Well, it is no more I that do the things that I don't want to do. 
It's no more I failing to do the things that I want to do. Well, who's doing it? He says in verse 17, it's no more I that do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. He expresses the same thing again in verse number 20. Now, if I do those things that I don't want to do, it's no more I that is doing it, uh, uh, that's, that I'm doing it, but it is sin that dwells within me. Now, Paul's making this point. This principle of sin is present within every single one of us. Evil is present. Sin dwells within our humanity. Look at verse number 18. He says in verse number 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. Look at verse number 23. He says in verse 23, There is a law of sin, which I mentioned, But he says in verse 23, that law of sin is resident within my members. He's talking about within his human body, his fleshly body. That law of sin is present within my body. He calls our human body in verse number 24, this body of death. And in verse number 25, he even acknowledges and admits that our flesh serves this principle of the presence of sin within us. Look at chapter 8. He, he expands on this idea in uh, chapter 8 and verse number 6. He says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is hostile toward God. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. It never can be. Verse number 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, in those verses, he's, he's talking about the unsaved person. He's talking about the person who is, who is not in Christ. Therefore, it's impossible for them to please God. That cannot fully describe a believer, but the, the remnants of that reality of sin remains within the life of the believer. In fact, in verse number 10, he makes this plain. He says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. He's making the point in verse number 10 that our bodies are wrapped up in this principle of sin and death. Even if Christ is in us, we still have this body that is dead. Like Adam, we have sinned and died. And because we have sinned and died, then we live in this body of spiritual death and all of the, the resulting consequences of death that come from sin. He says in verse number 10, like Adam, we will all one day physically die. We live in a body of death. These bodies are dying. This is the principle of sin and death, which Paul acknowledges is present within Every one of us. And here's the point that I was making to you at the beginning. That we should lament this reality that sin is very real. A very real struggle in every single life. But remember, lamenting is when we mourn with hope. And so while we ought to lament the the principle, the presence of this law of sin and death within every one of us, we do so with hope. We do so knowing that there is a solution that God has given. And Paul mentions that in chapter 8, verse 2, when he launches into this discussion about the law of life 
through the Spirit. He does teach us about the law of sin and death, but he teaches us, secondly, write it down, about the law of life in the Spirit. The law of life through the Spirit. Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now remember, in this passage, with few exceptions, when the word law appears, it's not referring to the law of God or the commandments. It's referring to a principle, a law, like a law of gravity. It is this law or this principle of sin and death within my life. Or in chapter 8, verse number 2, this principle, there is a, there is a greater, there, there is a, a, a more glorious principle. While Paul is lamenting the, the presence of, or of the principle of sin and death, he then acknowledges there is a greater principle at work in my life. There's a more powerful reality. There's an overcoming law in my life, which is the law of life through the Spirit. Now listen to me, church. Listen to me. That while we acknowledge the presence of sin, we acknowledge the fallenness of our human body, we acknowledge the fact that this presence of the law of sin and death is within us. We lament that. We mourn that. We recognize it. We admit it and confess it. At the same time, we can celebrate that there is an overcoming presence in my life, and that presence is the Holy Spirit of God. Hear me. The presence of sin in my life does not need to mean the power of sin over my life. Can I say that again? The presence of sin in my life, which is real, does not need to demand that sin have power over my life. Why not? Because there's a greater principle in my life. There's a new sheriff in town, if you will. There is one who has come into my life to overpower that resident principle of sin and death. And that new one who has come is the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is saying to us when he says in verse number 2 that we have been set free. Do you see that word? Verse number 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It means to remove the chains. I don't need to be chained down in the power of sin. Even though there is a reality of a presence, of a principle of sin and death in my life. Even though I live in a fallen body. Even though sin is a reality, it does not need to enslave me. It need not have power over me. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come to set me free, verse number two, to break those chains. So Paul celebrates, even as he mourns the reality of the presence of sin, he celebrates the presence of the Holy Spirit who has come to set us free. So the question then, when you read verse number two, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. The question becomes, how does the Holy Spirit do that? How does the Holy Spirit set the believer free from the law of sin and death? Well, go to verse number 10. Notice what he says in this verse. Verse number 10 says, And if Christ be in you, 
Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Jot this down. The first way that the Holy Spirit sets us free from the power of sin and death is that he draws out the righteousness of Christ. He draws out the righteousness of Christ. Now, this is what verse number 10 says. Let me reread the verse to you as you're jotting that that down. Verse number 10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Let me reword the verse. Let me rearrange the words a little bit. Here's what he says in verse number 10. Even though your body is dead because of sin. All right, that's the principle of sin and death. I live in a dead body spiritually. My body is lost. My body, your human body is not saved. Uh, it is still lost. It is dead spiritually. That's going, it's changing and we're being saved and we're going to be saved fully one day. But this is a body of death. He says in verse number 10, even though your body is dead because of sin, if Christ is in you, then your spirit is alive. Even though you live in a dead body, you live with a, a spirit made alive, reborn, made alive to God. And he goes on in verse number 10 to say, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. Now the fact is, all of us know we are not perfectly righteous people. But Paul tells us in verse number 10 that because Christ is in us, we have been made perfectly righteous. Paul would agree, and in fact his confession, his acknowledgments in chapter 7, verse 15 and verse 19, the good which I want to do I don't do, and the evil which I don't want to do I sometimes do. Evil is always present with me, even when I'm trying to do good. Paul would acknowledge, we would acknowledge, we are not perfectly righteous people. Never have been. But he says to us in verse number 10 that Christ is in us. And if Christ is in us, because Christ is perfectly righteous, we have been declared by the indwelling presence of Christ that we are perfectly righteous as well. And he says in verse 10 that because of the righteousness of Christ that is within us, that the Spirit is drawing out of us that righteousness. So the power of sin in our lives is diminishing as the righteousness of Christ is expanding. How did we become righteous? Go back to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3 and verse number 21. If, if, we are, if we have been made righteous in Christ, how and when did that happen? Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. The Bible says, but now the righteousness of God without the law has been manifested. It's being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. So Romans chapter 3 verse 21, Paul says that there is a righteousness of God. And you'll agree with me, won't you, that the righteousness of God is perfect righteousness. It is absolute righteousness. He says this 
absolute righteousness of God has now been made manifest to us. We've, we've received it. We've seen it. It's been made known to us. And it is that righteousness of God which we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he says in verse 22, then we are robed in. That righteousness of God is upon all them that believe. This is the doctrine of imputation, that the, Christ, the, uh, the righteousness of Christ is imputed unto unrighteous people like us. We are made or given the righteousness of Jesus. He says this again in chapter 4 of Romans. Look at it, chapter 4 and verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but that believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The word counted means it's reckoned for. Faith in Christ equals the righteousness of Christ. That's the doctrine. Faith in Christ equals, I am given Reckoned to me for my faith is the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's Jesus, perfectly righteous. He knew no sin. He became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now again, Romans 3, 21, 22, Romans 4, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. All these verses tell us that we have been made righteous by, the, uh, by our faith in Jesus Christ and Christ is in us. So back to Romans chapter 8 and verse number 10, Paul says, Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, though the reality of the law of sin and death is present, Within you, Christ is there, and so you have been declared righteous. Now the Spirit of God is taking the righteousness which is declared, which is positional, and He is drawing that righteousness out of you and making it practical or experiential. How does the Holy Spirit uh, bring about this death of or freedom from the law of sin and death? He brings it about by drawing out of us the righteousness that is within us. It is a transformation from the inside out. Now, secondly, in Romans chapter 8, he then tells us how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this process of his um, defeating the power of sin and death through the, through the presence of the, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he tells us in this passage in verse number 13 that we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit does the work of slaying, write this down, slaying the unrighteous habits of the flesh. Now, can we talk? Right? We all have some unrighteous habits, don't we? Uh, we all, I mentioned this a week or two ago, we all come into the faith with these habits and practices and behaviors that are unrighteous. And we live in bodies, which Paul has made clear in Romans 7. We live in bodies which are infected with sin. There's nothing good in my body. Sin dwells within my body. My body serves the principle of sin and death. So Christ has come to make me righteous, then to draw out that righteousness. And as he does so, he begins to slay those habits of unrighteousness that are present. 
Do you remember, uh, remember the Puritan pastor that I referenced at the beginning, John Owen, who said you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you? Well, Paul says the same thing. Look at chapter 8 and verse number 13. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now, he's speaking to believers, right? He, he says in verse number 12, Therefore, brothers, you're my brothers. We are debtors. We're obligated, not to the flesh, verse number 12, uh, to live after the flesh. But we rather should live after the Spirit. He says in verse number 12, uh, that, uh, or I'm sorry, verse number 13, that if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body or put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now, to live after the flesh simply means to embrace the habits of the flesh or to embrace the deeds of the body. Now, I won't take the time to go through those deeds. They're, they're referenced multiple times in the New Testament. Passages like Ephesians 4 and Galatians 5 and Colossians 3. Uh, all of these talk about the deeds of the flesh. But the truth is we know them, right? These are the attitudes and the actions of the fallen, uh, of our fallen humanity. Uh, attitudes like uh, rage and anger and hatred, uh, unforgiveness pride and greed. If you embrace that, verses 12 and 13, you shall die. Death results from that. The actions of the flesh, those passages tell us, immorality, lying, gossip, perversion, idolatry, on and on. These are the habits of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh. And he says in verse number 13, if you through the Spirit do mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now again, this is where we cooperate with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives within us to draw out the righteousness of Christ. But we have the responsibility to cooperate with him in allowing him and in his power to begin to crucify, to begin to put to death the actions and the attitudes with which we have always lived. He is our helper. It is by his power dwelling within us that we can begin to live a different kind of life. It is through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that cursing lips become praying lips. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that a hard heart and words that cut like a knife becomes a tender heart full of words that are kind and that bring life. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that unforgiveness melts into reconciliation. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that the, the alcoholic mother or father becomes the present, active, engaged, leading parent of that child. It is the power of the Holy Spirit within us that not only draws out the righteousness of Jesus, but that begins to kill off those actions and attitudes and habits of the flesh that we have always lived with. 
And my role, my part, is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that work. He is my powerful helper to give me grace to put those things to death. You see, Paul says we should mourn the reality of sin in our lives. We should lament the fact that there is a principle of sin which is still present within us. But we should praise God for the fact that this indwelling Holy Spirit is bringing out the righteousness of Jesus and killing off the unrighteousness of me and of you. He does this thirdly and finally by reminding us of our new relationship, reminding us of our new standing. I love the, I love the, um, just the, the, the family message in this passage when he says in verses 14 and 16 that we are no longer in the bondage that we used to be in, but we now live in this new and free relationship. He says in verse number 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, They are the sons of God, the sons of God. Compare that to chapter 7 and verse number 14. In contrast to our old standing as slaves to sin. That's what chapter 7 verse 14 says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under or sold into slavery to sin. He says, this is who I used to be. This is who I was. And this is who uh, Christ is setting free. This former slave has now become, chapter 8, verse number 14, filled with the Spirit. And as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. There's our new relationship. Verse number 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear. You used to be enslaved, but now you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, the word is an Aramaic word for daddy. It's the most intimate word in uh, in that uh, Aramaic language for that family relationship. When a child calls out uh, to his father, he says, Abba, Abba. He says, we have been given the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba. Father, we call God our Father. Verse number 16, and in that, the Spirit within us bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, the children of God. He says one of the ways that the Holy Spirit is is bringing out the righteousness of Christ and killing off the deeds of the flesh and setting us free from the principle, the the, the law of sin and death is that he reminds us by his spirit to whom we belong. And that belonging to our father, being the son or the daughter of God, we have this right, no longer a slave to sin. And so when sin rises up within us, when the principle of sin, the law of sin and death, begins to draw us back, we can, by the spirit of God, cry out to our heavenly father, Abba, Father, help me. Like any child, like any child being overcome by some evil, like any child under threat calling, Daddy, help me, Daddy. 
And any good father is going to run, even at his own peril, to rescue and help that child in that moment. Here's the point of the passage. The Holy Spirit is within you so that in the moment of temptation, when the, when the sin of your flesh and the principle of sin and death is rising up in you, you have the Spirit of God. Not only drawing out righteousness, not only killing off habits, but crying out to God, Abba, oh God, help me. In this moment, the Bible says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, that no temptation has taken us except such as is common to man. And with it, he has made a way of escape. And what is the way of escape? It is this dependency upon and this ability to call upon our Father. You see, the good news of Romans chapter number 8 is that the reality of the presence of sin, the remnants of sin and death still within us, don't have to hold us in bondage because Christ came and filled us with his Holy Spirit to set us free from the power of sin and death. He does it by drawing out the righteousness of Christ, which is true on the inside, by killing off the habits of the flesh, which are on the outside, and by causing us to cry out to God, who is our Father. Now, there's one other thing that the passage talks about that I have to mention just before we close, and it is... It is an encouragement to the ultimate end of this transformation that Paul has been talking about. And it looks forward to the day when there will be this promise of a sudden transformation. This promise that one day this work of bringing out what's true on the inside, the righteousness of Christ, and of killing off what's wrong on the outside, this, uh, 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 the fallenness of my flesh, that one day... That transformation will be full and final and complete. You see this, verse number 11, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Stop right there. Everybody look at me. Does the spirit of Christ dwell within you? If you belong to Jesus, he does. This is what this passage tells us. He says that if the spirit of God is not in you, you don't belong to him. So if you're a Christian... The Spirit of God dwells within you. Listen to verse 11. If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells within you. The Spirit that dwells within you, my my friend, is the same Spirit that raised up, that was active in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That powerful moment when the body of Christ reanimated and came to life physically, that spirit of God dwells within you. He says in verse 11, if he dwells within you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also shall also, in the same way, quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells within you. I believe there's a dual truth in verse 11. The first part of that truth is what we've been learning, that the spirit of God is within me to quicken my body, to take this body, this body in which nothing good dwells, only sin is in this human body, in this flesh, that there is this principle of sin and death still present within me, the Spirit of God indwells me to quicken this body, to make it more alive, to bring out the righteousness of Jesus, to kill off the deeds of the flesh. But one day that will be completed and it will be completed when Christ shall come and I shall be lifted high to heaven to be 
with him. Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, beginning in verse number 51, when he talks to us about the day of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible talking about the human body, this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall put on incorruption and when this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, uh, oh, grave where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that in Romans 8.11, the promise of the Spirit of God quickening our bodies is a promise for now. He's making me more alive now than I used to be. But one day he will quicken this mortal body completely. And it will no longer be the fallen body that, in, that uh, is uh, where the presence of sin is present. But he will make this body fully redeemed, fully immortal, and to be with him forever. This is the hope that one day sin will be fully eradicated in our lives. And we will be with and be like Jesus forever. My friends, the Spirit of God indwells you to give you power by his Spirit to overcome the presence of sin in your life. And if you've never met Jesus as your Savior, the Spirit of God will come to you if you'll receive Christ. And He will begin to remake your life and to make you new in all eternity.